How did my daughter get it and she did it? And they both eat the same things, stress over the same boys. So there is a hereditary element to it. It is hereditary or a, an inclination or proclivity toward it, like addiction. There is an expression that says heredity loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. Hi everyone, this is Ross, your host of Bear Crawl with Dads. So true confession, I'm completely leveraging this podcast for personal and selfish reasons. You see, not too long ago, I became a dad for the very first time, but with that, an older dad. So the one thing that I know so far is that this bear crawl as a dad is not meant to be done alone. We truly need each other. So may this podcast be that for you. So come along and let's bear crawl together. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining Bear Crawl with Dads. This podcast is for dads, those that are new in the game, those that have been a father for a really long time, uh, and really just to know that you're not alone in this amazing role of playing dad. And uh, audience, I have to tell you that this is an interview that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. And I'm not going to lie, uh, Kevin, I've been a little nervous about this chat, but uh, Audience, I want to introduce you to my guest, Kevin Olmstead, who uh, not only is the uh, husband, but he is a father, and he's written a book that just came out um, called Scared Dad Feeding. So, Kevin, welcome to Bear Crawl Dads. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you, I'm, I have the jitters as well. We'll get the other jitters together. But, Kevin, you know, as we kind of met each other via some phone calls, you know, I'm a new dad. Uh, my son just turned two. And so I'm leveraging this show to say, how do I not screw it up? And to glean from, from people that have gone before me as I'm scribbling and making notes and, and learning from you guys, but also too, just to have a platform just to talk to other people and speak their stories. So I really, really appreciate you being on the show. And so Kevin, before you introduce yourself, we did have a chance to talk a little bit on the phone earlier. So what are you listening to right now, music wise? Oh, it's so funny. Actually, we'll always throughout the year kind of lean back on classical music a little bit just in the background. It keeps me sane. The other two major genres I have is A, if I'm in the car with my 18-year-old daughter, it's a combination of hip-hop and country music. Or if oh. I'm in the car, the only reason I pay for XFM is I just listen to our stand-up comedy channels all day when I'm driving around. Okay, love it, love it. So uh, interesting you said hip-hop and country. Yes, my daughter... Just it's uh, whenever we're in the car, and this is a piece of advice I give you for your as a dad. When you yes. get into a car with a teenager, you don't own the stereo. Their phone jumps the line and updates yeah. with the car before yours, and before you know it, they're just streaming their playlist. And my daughter will alternate between hip hop and country music, and so I have been an involuntary fan of those genres now for about four years. Okay, so so involuntary, you've been marinating in that in that in the music genre, so. God bless you for, for putting up with that. That's awesome. Uh, we did finish the Netflix series called Beef. And throughout Beef, it's like one of the hottest shows right now. They had uh, Smashing Pumpkins kind of throughout the show. Mm -hmm. And so that is, uh, I would say, uh, lately I've been on a little Smashing Pumpkins trail here. But for you, what would be on that note, be, what would be one band that you would never really admit, but you would admit here on a podcast that you really secretly liked? Oh, um, One Direction. One Direction. I want to make sure that the audience hears that clearly. One Direction. 
Yeah. Even before my daughter had her eating disorder, which is, we were always very close. You know, it was a great father daughter. And when she was 11 or 12 and One Direction was the biggest thing on, on earth other than the setting sun. Um, they were on those big tour and I thought one year for Christmas, you know, this would be fun. So we got, uh, four tickets to their show at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena in like the fall of or September of gosh, I mean, it must have been seven, eight years ago. Um, but it's kind of just this goat, you know, it's that feel good music that kind of bonds us. Yeah. As an 18 year old girl still, it's her guilty pleasure to like the boy band from when she was little, cute as hell that she and I will belt out, you know, some 1D in the car together. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. So Backstreet Boys, I'm going to give a little shout out to them. Well, thank you for that. In the last music question, I promise, but have you ever tried to force your music that you grew up listening to on your kids? Like, you got to listen to this Cinder like that. No. Well, it's, you know, when, when my, so my son is 21, my daughter's 18. So kind of, you know, the listen to whatever you want era of music started like what, 10, 12, 15 years ago, instead of mm-hmm. the suddenly you had satellite and you had cars that had streaming services. And I think early on when my kids were little, I would just turn on 80s music or 90s. And my son actually just started liking it. So I never okay. put on him, but I would, I would crank up some 80s. And he was like, that's cool, dad. I like it. Okay. Because I just feel like there's some bands like growing up, big YouTube, big YouTube fan. Like, I feel like I'm going to kind of subliminally just kind of like just start dropping that into to my son. Just like, come on, come on, come on. You know, you got to like it. But I don't know. But my nephew, he's a freshman at Colgate. And he absolutely loves like the old 70s, like really intense, deep purple. And, you know, some of these old hard rock bands, which is really interesting. So actually, as a quick side note, um, my wife and I three weeks ago went up to Sacramento and we saw Depeche Mode play. And nice. And you know what was so crazy of what was kind of this, you know, new wave-ish band of the 80s. You flash forward to now and that tour, uh, they were interviewed on NPR. They were feeling uh-huh. New York Times, and it was all about these two 60-plus-year-old guys. And there's, it's now serious, and everybody takes them so cerebrally. And like, oh, my God, these icons of the 80s. Where I'm like, oh, wow, this was just kind of bubblegum pop, you know, synthesizing music I grew up with. Big, big Depeche Mode hey, Kevin, I know this is not all about music, but I really could go down this, this rabbit trail with you. But, Kevin, you have your journey and, and just your opportunity here to share with our audience. Um, you alluded to this a little bit earlier. It's just with your daughter and just her battles with anorexia and with her book, How She Is to Read Your Book. But incredibly powerful, raw, real, you don't hold anything back. I really appreciated that. So if you don't mind, if you could tell the audience a little bit now about you, your family, and maybe what led you up to this writing this book. You know, I'm, I think one of the, I'm always proud First and foremost, you know, um, my parents are both still with us, um, close to my brother and my sister. I've got lots of nieces and nephews. We as a family spend a lot of time together. So family is just a really important thing to me. It's a, it's a given to me. I take it for granted that it, I'm so important to me. But my wife and I met as undergrads at Cal 31 years ago. And yes. I'm incredibly proud to say still incredibly happily married. And, um, you know, I really took that model of being close with my mom and dad and brothers to raising my own family. And, um, yeah. you know, we, we always did everything together. We traveled together. And I would always say we'd have breakfast every day together and dinner every night together. And that, you know, gets mixed up as they become teenagers and as maybe one my wife's or my career goes in different directions. But staying together as a unit and, and the family, and, you know, that's just really important to me. So 
Also, as a lit major in college, I went on to the C student industry of the world. I sold booze for a living. And, um, but I always enjoyed, I always enjoyed any kind of writing I could ever do. I did public speaking. I was always on the fine wine side of the industry. I was very into education. I was certified by the court of master sommeliers as a certified SOM, not a master, not even close. But in my, my point is like the cerebral side and the educational side of wine always appeals to me. There's all this geography, there's all this history, there's chemistry. And so I did a line of education. The point being, I did a lot of speeches, a lot of public speaking. And, mm -hmm. and I was actually, of all people, it was your sister who asked me this. And this, I told your sister this, that in my 23 years of being a salesperson in the wine industry, my greatest wins, it wasn't because I made a quota or landed a deal or got the appointment. I really think my greatest wins were when I gave a great presentation or when, when I got to write something that got published in, an, in a magazine somewhere. Like those were my greatest senses of accomplishment. And so what that turned into is I treat writing as kind of a cathartic way to not self-therapy. I've kept a diary on my laptop for probably 12 years. I think it's up to 60 pages. There's times I don't see it for a year. And it, it's in real time, just vomited out. What's in your head? Why are you writing this? It serves two purposes, really. You talk it through with yourself and you work it out and you talk it out, but then you have a record of how you felt. That's kind of how I talk. It's how I write. And as my daughter, as we started going through uh, the horror of treating my daughter for an eating disorder, at some point, somebody said, you should write a book about this. But I just found myself writing. They weren't chapters. First. I would just, we would go through an episode or we would go through something and I just had to write it down. And so and I could kind of go on and on forever, but that's really where the book came from. I never set out to write a book or be an author, but I always had of maybe self-soothing through, through writing to work it out in my own head. And that's kind of how I got mm -hmm. to meet you and why I'm here tonight. There, I think there are times in life that people say, I want to identify, I want to become an author. I want to be an influencer. I want to be a something. And then they have to kind of work backwards on like, well, how do I get there? Mm -hmm. Those people are great and I'm not demeaning them at all complete opposite side, I cathartically just started writing stories and writing down journaling a bad day we had or an episode maybe with the police or something about, oh my God, I can't believe how healthcare works in this world or I can't believe how that hospital thing worked. And what it did is it allowed my brain to kind of sort through the data and spit back the ideas. And then suddenly I had five and then I had 10 and then I had 15 and then I had 20 of these stories which then somebody said, you should just arrange those and instead of call them stories, call them chapters. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I could do that. And then you make them chapters and then you start kind of ed soft editing them to make sure they flow together. And then somebody says you should have it edited. And then somebody says you should, you know, buy a, a website domain. And so I accidentally backed myself into a position where suddenly I'm holding the contents of what most people call a book. And I'm like, well, I'm not an author. And, the, and everybody said, well, yeah, you are. And mm -hmm. the whole side note to this, you know, you self-publish now, and again, without going too far afield, I learned in the wine business, let's just say that you own a vineyard and you're so excited about how you grow that vineyard and you love that fruit and that wine is so important to you. But then there's this humongous parking lot, metaphorically, of brokers and distributors and getting appointments and shipping inventory. And are they going to pay any attention to you? Or did you get into a retailer or a restaurant? And so much of the wine business the last 20 years has circumvented that and the whole direct-to-consumer, the DTC model, whereas as a small vineyard, through the internet and social media, you reach out and just find your direct customers and they find you and you sell and everybody gets what you, they want. 
I took writing the same way. I said, well, wait a second, through self-publishing on, on Amazon, I can just pay a couple of consultant people to help me design the cover and, and format it. And I don't have to find a broker or develop an elevator pitch or an agent and find publishers and then hope that maybe it sits on a shelf somewhere at a bookstore. Instead, I just build my own website. I go word of mouth and go social media and it's self-published on demand. And I'm going to get far more distribution and people finding my book that way. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Thank you for that. With the book, you know, and it's, it's obviously such, something that's such a difficult story, but I think sometimes, you know, the hope and the prayer is that through our scars and through our battles, you know, it can bring healing and help others, you know, say that you're not alone. You know, I think one reasons for this podcast is whatever topics come and sum up, whatever, or through my conversations with quote, just everyday dads, if something pops up that may trigger or, or really resonate with a listener out there, just say, I'm going definitely through that. I'm struggling. Man, I know that I'm not alone. You know, and that's been my hope and their prayer through our conversation is that for other families that are fighting the same battles that you and your wife did, that it, it will resonate. It will bring healing and blessings to other families out there. And so, you know, through this book is to, to be vulnerable and real, right? So that's the end goal from our conversation. You know, from the get-go in chapter one, Kevin, you just, you hit right after. I mean, you just jump right into it by abandoning all hope. And I think, you know, for the audience, I know for me, I do have a stepdaughter who's 13. Mom and I have a son who's two. And when I was first introduced to you through my sister that, hey, you may be a good person just to be able to share a story, I'm clueless about anorexia. I, and I think it's, like, it's a female thing. It's, uh, that's really only good battles. Um, so, and also too, I didn't realize and you highlighted this in chapter two of Head Games, that eating disorders on page 20 have the highest mortality rate of any middle disorder. That was shocking to me. I didn't realize that it was the highest. So if you could talk a little bit about that, maybe paint, uh, a little bit of a picture to our audience of just what is the demon that you described? Does it usually affect girls? Does it affect boys? It's, it's got a little bit of an identity crisis because the most visible and diagnosed and talked about and photographed and blogged has always been girls. Yeah. And girls might be more susceptible, you know, because stereotypically they're, they're more concerned of their appearance. Right now, there's probably two to three times the diagnosis of eating disorders in girls versus boys. Boys suffer from it. And again, to be incredibly cliche, boys tough it out or can hide it better. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an overview as you ask, but I'll very quickly, um, for anybody listening to this with a teenage son or who is out there involved in teenage athletics, there's this whole athlete culture. That's what the boys call it. Oh, it's athlete culture. I just eat chicken and rice and I'm in the gym twice a day and I'm going to get cut. Now, there's one thing to strength train. There's one thing to be physically fit, but boys are just as vain and they control their bodies with food and they deprive themselves of the nutrition they need for aesthetic purposes or for control purposes. But I'll give you a, a quick, yeah, anorexia. Um, anorexia nervosa is essentially the, you know, it's where you avoid or restrict uh, food intake and you overexercise. The goal is to, you know, control your body and make it as small as possible. You know, girls love the idea of having a thigh gap. They love the idea of the super skinny arms. That's anorexia. And along with bulimia, which is the uh, purging up of the food, 
mm-hmm. which uh, the, the toll it takes on your esophagus, the soft palate in your, in your mouth, it rots out your teeth. And they can go into the, the, the bone structure of the mouth as well. That's years and years and a lot of money to, to rebuild. You've got people who binge purge where they'll just like, they'll scarf down because they're so hungry and they're so obsessed with the food, but they can't keep it, so they purge it. And then probably one of the most recent ones that's been um, da, um, acknowledged, it's called ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which is picky eating to the extreme. So there's going to be dads on this call like, yeah, I know my kids don't let the green things on the plate touch and they only want sliced apples. ARFID is the extreme of that where the kid says, I will only eat a blueberry muffin and cauliflower. And the mm-hmm. anything else and they won't eat for days and they can't go out of the house unless they have. And now back to the stat you quoted. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about schizophrenia, bipolar addiction, eating disorders have the highest mortality rate. And it's very simple. If you don't eat, you die. If you starve yourself, if you're malnourished, you die. And one of two things happen. The demon or the, the eating disorder just is too strong to treat. And people just choose to starve themselves to death and they, they succumb to organ failure. Or because of the stress and the terror and the fear that it takes to recover from this, and it takes years, sometimes decades, kids just end up killing themselves. So that's where that stat of the highest mortality rate comes from. And, you know, the more and more that I've been a part of talking about this for the last few years, it really is the amount of people who come out of the woodwork anywhere in the 20s, 30s, up to years of my age, who talk about, yeah, I struggled for years, nobody knew. I struggled for years, there was very little treatment. I struggled for years. My parents didn't understand or didn't get it or didn't want to. And gee, I think I'm better now. The amount of head games surrounding food, it's crazy in our culture. I went to the gym, so therefore I can have extra dinner tonight. I ate so much, I have to go to the gym tomorrow. You know, I had too many sweets last week. We all play these games. There is no bad food. Your body will take in and eat all food and your body needs nourishment. So, you know, one other thing that I write in the book and I maybe get ahead of myself a little bit here is, you can be a functioning alcoholic, you can be a functioning drug dealer, you can be a functioning guy with a gambling problem. You can rarely be a functioning eating disorder patient because after you deprive or starve or malnourish yourself for X amount of time, the body wins in that the body will tell you that doesn't work anymore and we're going to shut down. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if you, you know, in, in you, again, saying your chapter zero, as far as chopping it all in, just how it started with your daughter, but if you leave kind of type A, just basically, it sounds like she was went attacked everything full throttle, 100%. But that through an injury, it kind of, I guess that's kind of maybe where it started. Which I thought was interesting too, though, you say that it's, she felt that her only sense of power or pretty came from her looks. She never considered her intelligence, her athletic abilities, her sense of humor, or her intrinsic goodness. That really jumped out at me too, was that sounds like she is just gifted in so many areas that she didn't choose to focus or consider those other things, right, for value. So whether your thoughts on that, well, and also too, I guess it's kind of two questions at the same time, but what is feeding this beast? Is it, is it social media? I hate to keep on pointing the finger social media. Um, peer pressure has always been in existence. Yeah, I feel like as adults, we're kind of walking wounded from the middle school years of like, where do I fit in? And then why the job? Am I the nerd? But what are your thoughts on those? So I personally, with various therapists over the years, and even my own therapist that I I stuck my hand up for and and started talking to over a year ago because I needed help. 
unpacking all this. So many questions, not only generally for anorexics, but for my daughter. Like, where did it come from? Like, how does her best friend, who we've known since they were like six, and they've been on every soccer team together and every sleepover together and every lacrosse team together and, and every school together, how did my daughter get it and she did it? And they both eat the same things, stress over the same boys. So there is a hereditary element to it, pretty well documented that it is hereditary or a, an inclination or proclivity toward it, like addiction. There is an expression that says heredity loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. There's a lot of speculation and we've thought about it. So my daughter, it's very typical. All eating disorders are very typical in type A, high achieving, people pleasing, you know, on the sports team, straight A's, doing this assignments a week ahead of time. Those types of people also are just very, they very, very easily succumb to, to failure, to something that doesn't work for them. They suddenly kind of, it, the twig that snapped. But at the same time, it's still kind of one of the biggest questions in the eating disorder community, like how and where and why. All I can say is my daughter has shared with us for a long time that well before she had the disorder, she started thinking about it as young as like 11. She was thinking about her body. She was thinking about how she looked compared to other people. She felt mm. it to control food and change food and use food. But that was all just notions at the time, but it was there. And it wasn't until that hip injury and the doctor said, you can't exercise. Again, I, I can't scientifically sit here and tell you that's what happened. But I can also tell you, I've met dozens of other parents who roll their eyes and say, oh my God, the exact same thing happened to my daughter. Your first question is a quote I took almost directly from my daughter in some pretty dark times of her just being very upset and just insisting that my looks are all that matters. That's my projected coin of the realm is how I look. And then the definition of what looks good to her is her definition and not anybody else's. And her definition was incredibly slim. And I'd never heard of a thigh gap until four years ago. And I said, what's that? I'm an athletically built guy. And she's screaming at me as a 14-year-old because I she got my goddamn thighs. I'm like, sorry. And then my bad. Sure, she is now four years later. And she's still, she's still struggling and we're still treating her. She still is... Yeah. And it is hard for her still. It's, it comes down to body acceptance. It really is about body shaming, whether we do it to ourselves or, you know, and here's a great thing to anybody listening. If you're listening to this podcast, you're a dad in your 40s or 50s. And unless you've got just such a huge ego, we're also the point in life where you kind of look around and accept like, yep, I'm bald. Or yeah, I'm probably never going to look like Brad Pitt. Or yeah, I'm kind of fit. But, I, you know, you come to an acceptance and a maturity and a reality. Boys or girls, it's a very hard thing for them to do as teenagers. That executive functioning isn't there. So those type A kids who have that hereditary little you know, buried Easter egg that somebody doesn't else have, and they don't have that ability to accept who they are and love who they are, they take it off the rails. One stat that I read was that treatment for anorexia can be, I guess only about 40% of individuals make a full recovery. You know, I, and I know you alluded to your daughter, he's, he's still battling it, but it's come a long way for her to get to the point where she is. What did you and your wife, and I'll say I don't want to get too much away because I don't want you know, our listeners to, to read your book, but what did you guys have to do to really just go all in? Well, I know because I read your book, yeah. but. It's not an answer, but your question kind of then goes to the stat. I don't know the statistics, so I'm not going to try to give you one on the show. 
but I think the success rate in people recovering or get recovered fully is really based on how they are initially treated. It really is. And the sooner on, the earlier on, the younger on, you have to rip the sink out of the wall and throw it at your daughter. You cannot do this part-time. You cannot soft pedal this thing. I mean, we, she was hospitalized once because and it's all about your insurance. Put her in a full-time live-in residential program for two months. We took her to daily outpatient for another two months. She was hospitalized again. And what uh, the biggest commitment we made was ultimately you have to treat this. It can be treated anywhere, but the gold standard for treating this is you have to treat it at home with family and it's called FBT, family-based treatment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to complicate it. You close the door and you lock it and you as parents or you as family, you as an uncle, whoever the caregivers are, you have to say, okay, this is all with consultation with a doctor and a psychologist and a psychiatrist and hopefully a dietitian. You have to have a team around you and, and either you don't have insurance, maybe you have to work two jobs. Maybe you work in a town that doesn't have good medical care. Maybe you live really remote and you don't have access to these tools. It is so very, the, the variables are crazy. Not to mention treatment for eating disorders is incredibly variable. It's not equal across the country. There's some really good facilities. There's a lot that aren't that great. The science and the protocols aren't standardized yet. There's a lot of moving pieces. But that FBT model, my wife took family medical leave. It's a federally allowed law. She took FMLA from her job for 60 days. And I worked with a small partnership in the wine business who are my friends. And I said, guys, I love you, but I have to leave for a couple months. You know, we just locked the door and with consultation with our medical team and said, well, she's got to get to this weight restoration level, get to X amount of pounds. Because once you get to a certain amount of pounds and you are refed and renourished, you then have more of the state strength of body that leads to strength of mind, which allows you to receive psychotherapy to treat the underlying disorder. But if you're constantly starving and malnourished and underweight, you don't have the strength to really accept and utilize good therapy. So we knew the target weight, which breaks down to X amount of calories per day, which breaks down to three meals and three snacks. And we would keep her out of the kitchen. I would do all the shopping. I would cook and I would plate it. And when she would sit down with me or my wife and I would sit a foot away from her because she would spit food into the water bottle, try to drop it for the dog, shove it in her bra, put it up in her ponytail, shovel it off into the sink. And you make sure that they eat every meal and that you have to sit with them for an hour afterwards to make sure that nothing is purged or spit up or gotten rid of and you do that six times a day and in our case we did it initially the first run was for three months to get her back to a sober level to a weight restored refed level and then my wife had to go back to work and i just told my partners i'm just going to quit I, I can't do this anymore and then we just lost my income and i stayed home with her so my wife and i are in a position with insurance that we could do that we live in northern california bay area we've got stanford we have ucsf we have alta bay we have a great organization of healthcare in this area, and I'm incredibly fortunate and grateful for that. That is not always the case for everybody. As a small plug for anybody who's listening out there, there's new companies like called Equip, and Equip brings that family-based treatment team and, and support virtually to you if you're not nearby for a yeah. treatment like that. So I guess the question is, I don't know, very few people get fully restored, but the people who get restored the most get the most amount of smothering treatment for as long as they can ha handle it as young as they are. And that's what we're trying to do with our daughter. Early intervention. You did the, 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 the pounds on it. 
as soon as you notice the behaviors, as soon as you notice them not eating with the family, them eating in their room, them not having the food you prepared, them suddenly at 13 saying they're vegan or they're going to eat acai bowls and smoothies. Um, you notice the weight loss, you notice the hair clumps falling out. <clears throat> and then you drag them to the doctor and the doctor is going to check out their, you know, the doctor is going to do heart tests in terms of blood pressure and heart rate. They're going to do um, check the blood for iron deficiency. Um, in girls, you can do a DEXA scan, which is bone density. Um, are girls losing their period? And then one of the best tests is called is to test for what's called orthostasia. Whereas you and I have been sitting here chatting for about a half an hour. But if you get up and walk across the room to get another beer, oh, yeah. your heart rate's going to go from whatever it is, probably in the 60s or low 70s, mm-hmm. up seven, eight, nine beats, like no big deal. My daughter, when she first was admitted to the hospital, the change in her sitting to standing heart rate was over 60 beats per minute. The heart is so weakened and so malnourished. So those are the things initially you do is you go to the doctor and you got to take care of the physical shell of of that kid. You got to address the weight issue. And that's the very first thing. But for parents who don't notice or think, oh, wow, kid looks great. Or the kid, because they become dark and secretive and they want to control and manipulate and kind of hide it from their parents, and they put on a huge hoodie that looks like it belongs to their college boyfriend. Again, it's, and this is where I want to be careful not to invite fathers and invite parents, but I did write a chapter zero to my book that basically said to dads, like, wake up guys, get involved. And maybe it applies to all parents when it comes to eating disorders. It's going through puberty, you're going to change their looks and change their attitude, but pay attention. Eating disorders sneak up and that weight loss and that attitude and the behaviors around food You've got to pay attention. You can smell the pot smoke on them. You can, you know, look at the gloss in their eyes if they've been out drinking. But you've right. got to pay attention to that that change. I mean, their literal mortality in front of you. You've got to pay attention, and then you you, you find every medical resource in the world you can to get them restarted. Now, you know, I can't think of a better blessing gift to your daughter, you and your wife. Holy go jumping all in. Yeah, so I appreciate you sharing that. Because I want to also to address, well, what, there's families out there like, well, I don't, we don't have a, a child that's struggling with anorexia, but we have a child maybe that's struggling with alcohol or, right? It doesn't have to be anorexia. So I do want to also to address maybe words of encouragement that you may have to families and especially fathers, since this is kind of the, one of the focuses of the, the podcast. But what was the like when you really have a hold of wine and you're watching your daughter? having to eat, sitting with her for an hour, like you just talked about. I know you alluded to several times uh, in the book, uh, her obviously really lashing out at you guys. There was another the local police were involved at one point. What was it like for you and your wife where your child's looking at you and can't stand you? It's saying some really horrible things. You've never felt so valueless and powerless You've never felt so useless in your life. The medicine is the food. That kid has got to get that one meal so they can get the next one. And you can't, I mean, you, you have this desperate sense that as they're screaming at you and not eating or refusing to eat or threatening not to eat or threatening to run away. And all you can think is, God damn it, you've got to, you've got to eat. God damn it, you can't skip this meal. God damn it, I can't slip because if you know, so much of eating disorders are tied to OCD, which is a whole other thing. But somebody with an eating disorder, if they get away with it once, then they're like, well, I'm going to get away with it again. Oh, you let me skip this meal, skip the next one. Every parent group that I'm a part of, I can't tell you, 
it's in that moment. And to this day, I still talk to dads and these dads, they shake and they cry and they stutter. It's another like, what do you do? How do you handle it? And every parent handles it differently because every kid is different. But you also, you know what? And for anybody listening here, and this is across any problem, as soon as you face the devil or you've gone to the edge of the abyss and you've come back, your fear kind of goes away and you realize like, okay, I got my first hit in the game. I'm dirty. My jersey is ripped. Let's go. And so once you get over that fear of being screamed at, you get over that terror and you realize that's the eating disorder talking and not your daughter. That's an eating disorder also that sees you winning, that every bite that that kid takes, the eating disorder takes a punch. And as long as you can have that, that, that strength and that, that, that clarity and that maturity, and you may not get it if you've never joined a parent group or you may not get it because nobody's ever helped you or nobody's ever told you about it. But once you learn that, you know what, every time you win a meal, it's going to get easier the next time. But sitting in those moments, even outside of the meal, when there's not a meal, but there's a discussion about, I'm never going back to treatment. I hate that doctor. You can't make me go to that clinic. The best thing you can do is not engage. You have to not debate. You have to keep calm and you have to say, we know it's best for you. We're going to do this. Let's go. And I cannot speak for all fathers, but my daughter is the bluster and the ultimatums and the threats that she would make. And she came true on a lot of them, but a lot of her bluffs we called and she got in the car and she got on the plane and she came back to the chair. And after a while, you just have to have faith in yourself that it's going to work, that she wants or he wants to be healed. But yeah, those moments are the worst. They, they really are. I'm part of a men's group that we meet every two weeks and we're kind of the subset of the subset. It's fathers from across the country. And I think we even got through some in Canada and the UK. And if you're on this call, you're a father who wants to be there. You're a father who does need help. And we all realize how rare we are. We don't know very many other fathers, but we also also desperately need each other. And the fathers bring a very different perspective. I mean, I'll be honest with you. This book would have come out anyways, regardless of what I called it. But as a dad's perspective, that's why so much of the eating disorder community has liked it because they're like, wow, we don't hear anything from fathers. But what I'm learning is not only just in that group, but I've met so many other fathers just around my community and the schools where they've said, hey, Kevin, I love your book. My sister's bipolar and my God, we struggled with her. And I didn't realize that how I should engage, right? I just talked to a friend of mine today. I did not realize that both of his kids had been in tragic accidents and both had had leg problems and one can't walk and the other one is fine now. But their tragedy and engaging that and how the father had, was like, I need to be a part of this. So I've gotten a lot of people that's not even just eating disorders. It's like I said in chapter zero, it's just parenting one-on-one. You know, kids are 50-50, one part from the mom, part from the dad. And I know that our, our, our society has really developed the idea of men being the breadwinners, but you know, parenting is a 50-50 thing. And you know, there's just really times that a, a, a dad's voice can sometimes make a difference and really help. Well, you know, in, in you know, my second point was obviously, you know, I wanted to hear and the audience to hear your words of healing and encouragement when your daughter or your child is yelling at you or thinks you're the worst person, but like you said, it's like, it's, I apologize for the analogy too, but I'm glad, like taking that first hit. I remember when I was coaching JV basketball, we, and at the end of the year, we would take our team to go paintballing, you know, and you're like, you're anticipating that first hit of that paintball, but then once you got it, then you're like, okay, now I'm in. And so I apologize for the analogy, but I guess what you're saying is like, once you got that first hit, all right, bring it. Cause I know the end goal, I've got the macro view and I'm not going to give up. I'm going to be tenacious and we're going to get after it. So, so I heard that. 
But also, Joe, I want the, I want the audience to know too, those that are listening. You know, if you're saying, you know, getting attacked at zero, that it's glaringly absent. A father is really getting active, getting in the game, thinking that first hit, getting over, uh, getting hit in the jaw, maybe, and kind of reorienting themselves to the reality of maybe what their, their child was suffering with. So, you know, I want the audience to know whether it's, again, your, your battle that you had to go through is anorexia, but for families that are battling other mental illnesses or other struggles, what would you tell dads out there, you know, from your experience that they get to travel all over the country and speak, you know, on Zooms, but what is your encouragement? How do you get dads to be more active in their struggles? Um, we know how there's a lot of single dads, you know, out there and I'll see with divorce, you know, families, but what would you say maybe to them to encourage them? The very first thing I, I would say, and I actually said this to a father the other day on a Zoom call, is I said, I actually believe that most fathers want to be involved. I really do. I think when push comes to shove in the moment, I don't think it's a matter of having to really browbeat or say to another man, hey, it's not just your wife, it's you. I've talked to so many dads where, where I'm like, you want to be involved, don't you? I mean, you're just scared. And more often than not, they're like, exactly. And it's the way men are just wired. Uh, maybe it's an entirely other show, you know, for another podcast. Being a father, being involved in a lot of fathers groups. I mean, it's just true. Men and fathers approach things generally different than the mothers and women do. Men, stereotypically, this is not for everybody, we're problem solvers. And one of, it's one of the biggest sins that fathers and eating disorders, we just want to solve the problem in a minute. Just eat. Well, come on, just don't do that. Do this and we'll be fine. And so many dads laugh and shake their head. They're like, oh my God, you're totally right. Oh, that's where it's been. But yeah. I really go back to the answer. I think most dads want to be involved. I don't think they have to be. I think once you give them permission, the biggest thing that I've learned is, you know, and it's okay to be vulnerable. It's really okay to be scared. It's okay to tell people that. Really go to the world with a curious mind. Go with a beginner's mind. Stop pretending you know everything or you control everything. Stop thinking that you can affect everything. And once you just be honest about that, and it's with the most personal thing in your life, it's your kid. I mean, you can say you're close to your mom or your, or your wife or your dog, but your kid is a part of you. And I think once men are told it's okay to be scared, you have permission to be emotional. You do want to help and fix this thing. You don't have all the answers. There is no toolkit. And by the way, there's no blueprint, but it's okay to get in there and try. And that's what I would say to dads. Well, I think maybe kind of we talked about, like, we do want to do, generally we want to fix things. We're, we're fixers and you need to like, you know, and, and move on. It, but also maybe acknowledging that we, you know, we don't know everything. And so I guess it, you know, because I worked in, the, I'm in the world of education and we're trying to go more shift to that growth mindset for our students, but also too as educators. You know, to flip the switch and be, I guess, be more proactive, you know, in, in adopting that growth mindset. Would that be true to the dads to, to have that mindset, to take those risks, to embrace the challenge, if you will, and to acknowledge that we don't, we don't know it all. You know, it's, it's a side anecdote. Um, but about a year ago, I put together a, a document. It was meant to be a funny movie, but I put together a documentary for a dear friend of mine by interviewing about 25 of 
his friends. And I have no idea how to do interviews. I have no idea how to record. So I just did it. And I've known all these 25 of the guys for 25, 30 years. And um, when I, and I put together a script and I said, I'm going to Zoom you guys one by one. I'm going to ask you this. It's kind of a funny video for this guy. And the most accidental thing that came out of it was, you know, as I'm interviewing, I'm asking these guys, we're all kind of jeering and having fun about it. Ultimately, it would turn around to, hey, I'm talking in a while, or hey, it's good to see you. What are you up to? And what am I up to? And whether it's true or not, I think when I shared, oh, well, you know, I don't work and I'm taking care of my daughter. I can't tell you just the number of men that I interviewed, all late 40s, early 50s, who for whatever reason, I guess, represented a safe space or they knew about what was going on with my daughter. But so many of them just shared like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do in life now. Or yeah, I'm older and I'm feeling more this, or I want to find more fulfillment there. Or yeah, I kind of wish I hadn't done that career. It was the most unexpected like therapy session with so many of these guys. It was just really great to share. What it did is it reinforced to me, and maybe that's where I got the idea for my piece of advice, but it really just re- it reinforced to me that once you show somebody that it's okay, you know, it's okay to talk about things like this. I really think men and dads, once we get a little older and softer, we're, you know, we're not worthy of that, you know, standoffish cliche description anymore. I think most of us want to be more involved. No, that's good. You know, I don't know, to with age, right? Maybe we're... We're crossing that bridge to be, hopefully, like, I don't have time to try to keep up with the Joneses or how I look to some degree, you know, like, who cares? And I think there's beauty and freedom in that, maybe. Oh, there's incredible freedom in that. And, you know, I can almost just also argue a super tiny, tiny point. But even before the pandemic, the amount of men who worked from home was growing. Then with the pandemic... I would argue that suddenly you've got a solid four or five years of all these dads suddenly who are home all the time. And they're like, yeah, I'll take them to school or I'll pick up that meeting or I'll, I'll get that doctor's appointment or, you know, maybe things they hadn't done before. And maybe there'll be a generational change of just, you know, proximity that they were around more. Education, do you see more dads being involved in the schools? I know, though, I haven't really seen that necessarily with our school. Yeah, that's a huge update. I would say that like with, you know, this podcast, you know, I would say that um, one thing that's kind of bubbles up a lot is kind of on a side note is that parents, you know, or dads share those that are kind of like you or you are with your days of your children, how quickly time flies, you blink, they were two, now they're 18, now they're 21 and, you know, holy crap, like it flew by so quickly and and I don't know when you do that documentary, but some of the dads are like, if I had to do it over again, I would have maybe some of my interests, you know, here in Texas, whether it's the hunting, the fishing, maybe, you know, every weekend, I would have put that aside and made a little bit more time for my kids because now I kind of regret it. Why do I so quick? You know, it's a, I wish that was more intentional, you know, in my kids' lives. So I think that's one thing that I've picked up too with my son is just trying to be more intentional be more present it really is i mean it's so cliche to but be a blink and they're gone and i don't want to sound like i'm patting myself on the back but my son is 21 he's about to graduate from oregon and i mean it's made like the mature just the things he talks about and the things the person he is and the values he shows and the things he wants to do with us as a family you know my wife and i want to believe like oh my god it worked they you know look at him coming back and you know reflecting a lot of who we are and were and oh that's so cool you know he's yeah. a person 
But it is really rewarding in that one sense. Again, I want to be very careful because I've just met so many dads who are so involved and I, I don't want to draw divisions and I don't want to play on gender stereotypes. I just know that within the eating disorder community, within the caregiver community, and as I talk to more and more dads just about either therapy or trying to find better state of mind, it's a smaller subset than you find of mothers. Well, and I think too, you know, I think one thing, one thing too, and somebody, you alluded to this, uh, if you don't mind sharing the group that you said, there's like an on, online community yep. that you, because I, I do want you to share that. Um, and all this information that we talked about as well, Kevin, will be in the show notes, you know, for listeners to access uh, your website, um, you know, obviously yourdadsfeeding.com. There's some great resources there where you can obviously buy this book. But I think there's the, what, refeeding to get sober and all that kind of good stuff. But it is seeking feedback. The more that we can be proactive in getting feedback from others through family and colleagues and mentors and receiving, that's how we can improve ourselves. And again, knowing that we're not alone and tell me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned that, that obviously with your daughter, uh, with the SEP, um, yeah, this, this, that, you need to take the village. We can't do this alone, but would you say that's, that's fair as far as that's feedback and having that community oh, of a no. band of brothers, if you will? I think what I'm about to describe would apply to any father. But, you know, for the first three years that we treated our daughter, I never went to a single parent group. I was never part of anything. And my wife and I, we didn't have anybody to lean on other than each other in the world of anorexia being so untalked about. The whole point of my book is I'm standing up waving my hand and waving my flag saying, I will help anybody. Please don't be silenced about this. But for the first three years, we never had a single resource. Just about a year ago in this June of last year of 2022, my daughter going into high school graduation went into a horrible relapse. I mean, it was just heartbreaking. And we kind of barely got her across the high school graduation stage. And then we had to put her back into UC San Francisco's medical refeeding unit for two weeks just to get some food. And we immediately moved to San Diego last summer. University of California, San Diego, UCSD is a tremendous university. The medical training, the hospital, the science, the background, the research. I mean, they've got the Scripps Institute. UCSD is an amazing place. And their eating disorder clinic is probably one of the most sought after in the country. And they have a daily 10-hour-a-day outpatient program that not only treats the children, but it, it engages the parents to train them on FBT. Well, when we moved down there and I suddenly am, okay, okay, I'm going to live in San Diego now and take my daughter every morning. And by the way, that's another example of she got on the flight and she went down there and every morning she got in the car and I took her and it was miserable and horrible and she hated me and she didn't talk to me for four months. But, you know, I suddenly had to be part of parent groups. I had to go on all these Zoom calls. I had to join these, okay, parents sit down, you know, reflection moments. And at first I'm like, yeah, after three years of being alone, I was like, this is fantastic. Like, I'm not crazy. These people are all saying the same crap I've said. And oh God, like it was so refreshing and and enlightening and life-giving, right? I mean, it's like, oh my God, they've gotten so much better than I do. And then some other one would say, like, oh my God, they have it so much worse than I do. And to this day, every Monday, um, even though my daughter's been out of that program since September, I'm still part of a group every Monday morning that gets together of parents who are there at that time. And we're all still tracking each other's kids' progress. And then when I came home, there is a group nationally called Feast. Um, Empowering and supporting, I always forget it. Basically, it's a caregiver support group, Feast. Feast Feast.org. You're amazing. 
And it was a couple of fathers within Feast about two years ago who created what's called the Men of Feast. And it is, I say to people that I've found my tribe, I log into that Zoom call every two weeks to the Men of Feast. And, you know, there's some dads in there whose kids have been recovered for years, some dads who are still in the middle of it, some dads who show up for the first time and they look like they're trying to speak Romulan. They have no idea what the hell they're doing. Um, there's a lot of crying. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of great advice. And uh, the men, and maybe this long-winded babble is to say to your question, if you've lost a child, if you've got a kid with schizophrenia, you have a spouse with a substance issue, you're going through an eating disorder, do not carry that anvil alone. Find a support group. Find people to talk to. It makes all the difference in the world just to get it off your chest, just to know you're not alone. And just knowing that as corny as it sounds, it wasn't until I experienced it that I believed it. Just having that group behind me, really specifically fathers only. I listened to those stories. I've cried with some of those guys. Some of them have bought my book and asked me a lot of questions. It's reinvigorating. You gotta just learn a lot there. Joe, thank you for sharing that. And um, it is the b-ed.org. Right. It is there listening to to check that out and get well that'll be in the show notes um kevin for those that that need to, to go to that resource and I, um and i think that's the biggest thing too is just to let our, all of our families know that whatever you're going through um to find community to find others that are going through uh it with you um because it's life-giving um i remember when i was struggling with i guess i, I anxiety and there's a period in my life you know you kind of feel like you're crazy but we talk to other people that have gone through it um, you're like, it is life-giving, you know, just like, I know exactly what you're going through with your Sawa. No, I handled it. And so I, I appreciate that. And I think you opened up the show that I was a little nervous, you know, about our conversation because it's like, this was such a heavy topic and it's such a, also your book is just so raw and real. And I'm like, what am I going to ask? And I want to honor your, your daughter and, and who she is and y'all's battle. With that being said, you know, Kevin, is there something that I haven't asked that I need to ask or anything that you do want to share with the audience? Um, again, whether it's valuing a child with anorexia or anything else. Well, I'll, I'll say two things. I am a believer. You can laugh at anything in life. And I'm not kidding. Because if you don't laugh, you're going to die. And there's some points in the book. There's some parts of the book. Or I thought it was pretty funny. But then again, I laugh at my own jokes anyways. So I think you have to find the humor in it. I think you've got to keep yourself from going crazy. It's super, super heavy. But, you know, there, there is some levity in there. Maybe just, you know, the, the biggest point, I wrote this book in real time in most of 2020. Any editing I did, I hired an editor, a really dear friend of mine, Dr. Heather Wood, and she lives in Texas. So way to go, Donger. Thank you, honey. So it was professionally edited, and but all the edits she made and all the edits I made, it was in pursuit of maintaining the authenticity of my voice and my experience at the time. So I added a couple things here and there. I rounded off some sharp edges. But my point is, I have probably lived two or three lifetimes with my daughter since the end of this book. Really wanted it to show everything I was experiencing, how naive I was. And while I've probably adjusted and grown maybe changed some of my opinions as I sit here with you today. Everything in this book is completely authentic and I wanted it to stay that way. What I'm getting is I think the biggest thing that I've embraced in the last year that obviously I've been talking a lot, about, but you know, the biggest thing I want to say to everybody, whether it's specifically eating disorder 
at some point, anybody with a mental disorder ultimately has to run recovery. And you as a caregiver, you know, put on your mask before helping others. You can't sit there and carry that anvil and refuse water and say, I'm okay. I don't need to sit down. You've got to find a therapist. You've got to find a peer group. You got to go to a yoga class and you got to go fishing. You've got to take care of yourself because if you don't, then the eating disorder will take two people down. My biggest journey in the last year, and I'm, I'm probably a changed man and also a shout out to a guy named Dave Dunn. You should read his book. Um, Dave Dunn treated a daughter for 10 years with anorexia and as well as his wife had it. And Dave said as hard as it is, he likes the person he is after 10 years. The, the lessons he learned about himself and people and treatment and compassion and caregiving, he likes the person he is. And I got to say, four years later, I like the person I am. I'm glad of who I am because of what I've learned. And in this last year alone, between therapy and group, publishing my book, talking to people, and I wasn't joking, I've been taking yoga for about three months and just the clarity of mind and the strength of my own character, I got to put on my mask first if I'm going to keep this journey going before I help others. And that's probably the biggest uh, message to any person or any parent or any father. Well, that's powerful, Kevin. And I appreciate you sharing that. You, you've been given this, this challenge and, and now you've risen to, the, to it so well. And um, you and your wife um, and how lucky your children are. So thank you for sharing that. And, and I, you said kind of a, kind of a lighthearted, I guess, you know, way to end the our chat, but what, what is one thing, I guess, you often become focused on, on your daughter, but what is one thing that y'all do together, you and your daughter, that brings you the most joy? It's not eating. Um, you know what? We travel a lot. We do a lot of trips together. And this may not be the, the answer you're looking for, but my daughter, she is funny as like you have no idea. You don't know from funny, brutal funny, honest funny. Hanging out, sometimes at home, but hanging out in public. And my daughter just starts riffing on the world, coming from sometimes a position of pain, sometimes a position of maturity because she's come a long way. Yeah. If I'm sitting at a cafe or a restaurant or driving around somewhere and we and just riffing and hanging out with my daughter when it's not about anorexia and it's not about recovery, and it's just about being funny. Okay. Those are just some of the most enlightening times. And and I've told her at some point later, girl, if you can pull it together to create a stand-up act about all this, you will rush it. Well, yeah, I mean, this has been just a very meaningful, meaningful conversation. And I can't thank you enough for doing me the honor and humoring me with um, this little side hustle thing that I have going just to, to be able to talk to dads and just to hear their stories. And uh, it's been fun. And if they're in the audience of two, that's okay. I really have enjoyed this. And thank you for being so open and honest. And um, I really, really want to encourage uh, anybody that's listening to please, please go and buy Scared Dad Feeding. Um, it's incredible. It's raw. There is some humor uh, buried in there for sure. So definitely want to encourage you to read that. Um, you know, not only, again, like I said, not only for famous here in Yellow's business with anorexia, but anything else that it may be um, some encouragement to you. And in all the stuff that we talk about too, that will be in the show notes that people can click on and, and get access to you or to your resources and some of the other things that you mentioned as well. Be, and that will all be in there as well. 
But Kevin, I, I appreciate you and really, really appreciate your time. Hey, man, by virtue of the fact that you created this and you're making this happen, I, I appreciate you. I have a lot of respect. And I think a lot more fathers are going to find your podcast. A lot more fathers are going to say, hell yeah, brother. This is great. So keep it up. I'm, 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 I'm now a lifetime listener. Oh, I appreciate that, Kevin. Hopefully, I'll get to meet you in person, whether it's uh, on the on the West Coast or if you're ever down in, in Houston. So uh, you've got some friends and family here in Houston, for sure. In Austin as well. So there's two parties that you have to come and visit here in Texas. So just know that. Well, as long as you have something called barbecue, I'll probably be down there. <laughs> awesome, Kevin. Well, hey, thank you so much, man. Thanks, Ross. We hope you enjoy this latest episode of Bear Crawl with Dads. From a brother C.S. Lewis, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending.